Thank you, man. That's a great gift for this Mother's Day, and I want to add my congratulations to those mothers who are among us. It happens to be my privilege to have my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, here with us today. She's been working for 30 years to try to sort me out, and I want to say she's making some progress. <laughs> Things are going in the right direction. So anyways, thanks to all the mothers and all that you do for us. Please join me in prayer. Father, we do rejoice that... Uh, for whatever the reason people decide to set aside this day to honor mothers, we know that you care about mothers. You cared about your mother. You care about people being respectful of their mothers. And so I pray this would be a good day of celebration and joy and fellowship. But Lord, we also know there are people who, what they really need is reconciliation. Perhaps estranged from their children or their mothers. And Lord, we're asking for grace and mercy today related to relationships, especially with mothers. And Father, as we turn our hearts to your word once again, to see what you were doing when you started the church, I ask that it would touch us deeply and personally. May we see that what you were doing then has relevance for today. Father, we acknowledge your sovereign work to do exactly what you planned to do. We rejoice that your Holy Spirit is with us, just like he was with those apostles. And Lord, I do ask today that you'd help us to hear from him and respond in obedience to him. We make that our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, uh, we're in this series of the book of Acts, and it's an exciting story, and it is a story. It's something that really happened in real time and in history. And it gives us a picture right back to how God was at work in starting the church. You know, we all love consultants. We all want someone who supposedly knows what they're doing to tell us what to do. It's amazing how many church consultants there are, whether by books or seminars, or certainly you can pay people and pay a really significant fee to get some consulting done. But in essence, we just have a comfort about knowing somebody's in charge. So you think after three years with Jesus, that the disciples would have had this pure plan, and they know who the leader's going to be, you would think. You might have wondered if it was going to be Peter, or maybe John. But actually... God did leave them with a plan, and God did leave them with a leader. But listen to this. Acts 1.8, where we started, says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the plan, and the leader was the Holy Spirit, not Peter, not John. They were to wait until the Holy Spirit came. Well, you would think that if Jesus set the pattern and the disciples followed him, that things would go smoothly in the starting of the church. He did set the pattern and things did get moving, but it's a bit of a stretch to call it smoothly. You see, part of the pattern Jesus set was being the suffering Messiah. He didn't come to lord it over people. He didn't come just to prove a point. He came to pay the substitutionary price for our sins and the sins of the world. And so if people were going to join him and get invited into what he was doing, it was joining in to the work and the life, the living life of the suffering Messiah. And so it would turn out that part of God's plan for the church was suffering also. It was not an accident. It was not just an inconvenient thing that happened. It was part of God's plan. And you have to say, what kind of plan is that? I mean, who will sign up for that plan? And actually, that's a question that gets asked up until today. 
Oh, yes, I want to be involved in Christianity. I want to be involved in following Jesus. I want to be involved in what the church is doing. As long as it's convenient and comfortable and safe and brings some benefits to me. But when it becomes inconvenient or even dangerous or costly, then it's a whole other matter. But that's how it was from the beginning. So let's review what happened. So the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Next Sunday, by the way, which is a good day to wear red, right? And on that first day, 3,000 people are added to the church. Started with 120, went to 3,000. The apostles have the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're doing miracles, and they are telling the story about Jesus. And the church is growing, and so it gets past 10,000. And then, and this doesn't take very long, persecution begins. Peter and John are arrested and told, don't tell people anything about Jesus. And of course, they rejoice, and they go on telling people about Jesus, and they get arrested again, and the second time, they get flogged and released, told, do not tell anybody about the name of Jesus. And then at this point, a very interesting thing happens, as we looked at uh, when we saw that the uh, elders of the church, the apostles, had to call for some help. And they got the people that we sometimes refer to as the deacons, Stephen and another guy named Philip, who comes into our story today. And so this second tier of leaders starts ministering. And Stephen is preaching with power and full of the Holy Spirit. And they can't rebuttal his uh, arguments that Jesus is the suffering Messiah that Isaiah, for instance, had talked about. And so because they can't shut him up, they stone him to death. It was a turning point in the church. And one of the last arguments that Stephen made to the church and certainly to those religious leaders was, you know, you keep saying we're blaspheming against this temple and against Jerusalem and against Moses. I'm telling you what, we don't need this temple. And we are the true followers of Moses because what we need is God the Holy Spirit and he's in us. But you guys, you never listen to the Holy Spirit. Every time God has sent you somebody, you kill them or you rebut them, you will not listen. And of course, when he said that, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him. And then the church came under real heat. It says in Acts 8 verse 3, Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And so the outcome was, people started fleeing the city. They'd been gathering in the city. They were gathered there for Pentecost. Many stayed. Others who lived there were joined into this new church. But when Paul got serious, we called him Saul in those days, and started arresting and harassing people, people had to leave. Which you would think, oh my goodness, what happened to the plan? What was the plan? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And Samaria. And under the uttermost parts of the earth. We don't know how long it would have taken for the disciples to get out of Jerusalem. But God wasn't waiting. He brought that persecution and the church scattered. And it says in verse 4, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Suffering was used as a tool of God. Now after Stephen's death, one of what I assume was one of his close friends, Philip, I think had to know Stephen. He was one of the seven chosen to serve the widows, had worked with him there in Jerusalem, perhaps had studied because they were both Greek-speaking Jews. Maybe they went to some of the same synagogues together. But now Stephen is dead. And you think Philip, one of the seven, now one of the six, would be terrified and think, I'm going to be very careful what I say. I don't want the same outcome that happened to Stephen. But no, what we find is Philip is going everywhere preaching the gospel. Jesus is alive. He's telling everybody every place he goes. I know this is true. He died, but he rose again. So Philip goes to Samaria. 
Samaria was definitely one of the places on the list they were supposed to go to. But you know what the Samaritans were considered by the Jews? Dogs. They were half-breeds. They were part Jewish and part a mix of Gentile, and the Jews thought less of them than the Gentiles. They felt they'd really been betrayed with that group of people, and they wouldn't let them have freedom and access of worship, and so they created their own worship system in Samaria. And we know Jesus went there and ministered and helped him understand how this was a group of people that he also loved. But Philip is there, and he's preaching the gospel, and many people believe. And uh, actually... Philip was used in his ministry to have these people make a profession of faith, and then he would baptize them. But here's an unusual thing, and you're going to have to put your thinking caps on here for a minute. We're going to do a little bit of what we call hermeneutics. How do we study the Bible? This is a history. This is a story of what actually happened. But sometimes we take history and try to make practice out of it and assume it's teaching us what to do. And there are many things to learn from history, But it's not always something that we just take on as a teaching passage of what to do. And the example here is, Philip's there preaching the gospel. People repent. People are baptized. But the Holy Spirit does not come on them. And then the apostles are sent from Jerusalem. Hey, do you hear? Philip is preaching in Samaria. What's that about? And they come down to see. And sure enough, he's preaching an accurate gospel, an accurate story of Jesus. But... The Holy Spirit is near, so Peter and John lay hands on people and pray, and the Holy Spirit comes. And everybody there knows that's what happened, including Peter and John. Now, I don't know all that God was doing and all the things that come from this passage, but for sure, God wanted the apostles to understand his kingdom and the church was expanding. He wanted them to experience that this was part of his plan. And these people were now part of his church. They had the same Holy Spirit that they had back in Jerusalem. And it seems to me it was important for the unity of the church that Peter and John were in on it. And then once that happened, Peter and John left. And they went to other villages in Samaria preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. They hadn't been doing that before. But after Philip's example, they started that. Well, that gets us all up to today's story, which is Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. So let's look to that passage in Acts. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. He met this Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. So this is an interesting start to this story. And verse 29 says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. So what do we see in this story? It's an amazing story, really. Philip had this very successful ministry in Samaria. People are responding like crazy to the gospel. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, Take a hike, Philip. Go not just from where you are back to Jerusalem. Go through Jerusalem all the way down that desert road to Gaza. Just start walking, Philip, and I'll give you your next orders when it's the right time. So Philip, in obedience, starts walking. And as he's walking, he recognizes there's an Ethiopian high official. Now, you know how it is. If you're walking along the road and somebody drives by in a really nice car, we have this status thing that just happened, don't we? 
We know who's important and powerful, and the question is, will the person in a really nice car stop and ask the person walking if they want to ride, or how does that work? Well, Philip is walking, and this eunuch from Africa has got a big chariot, and he's got staff with him, and someone's driving the chariot because he's reading while he's going along in this chariot. And Philip sees this guy, and the Holy Spirit says, yep, that's the one, Philip. You go up and engage him. And so that's what he does. He goes up and begins a conversation with him. You see, the Ethiopian had all the prestige. He was a foreigner. He was of a different race. And he was in the nation of Israel. But he had power and money and staff. And Philip was just this itinerant preacher. Not very impressive by the world's standards. But what I want you to see here is how totally God was at work. God was at work in Philip. And Philip was willing to listen and understand. You have something special for me to do today. And God was at work already in the uh, eunuch's heart. Basically, he was struggling. He wanted to know God. He was trying to figure it out. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. There's no indication that he had become a a pure proselyte. That would have meant that he would have gotten baptized to show he was going to follow Judaism. He hadn't gotten that. But there was something about the God of Israel. He wanted. He had all the wealth of Ethiopia. He had the prestige of his job. But he'd make these trips to Jerusalem to try to find out who this God is. And can you know this God? And more importantly, can you be right with this God? And so he's wrestling when he comes upon this walker, Philip. And then Philip's question, do you understand what you're reading? What a great question. You know, so often when we want to share the gospel with somebody, we're so nervous about it. And so full of ourselves and our fears or what we want to get our message out that we don't even think to engage somebody where they are. And just to ask a question. And then really to listen when they give the answer. Do you think about spiritual things? Is this thing that just happened in your life, is that causing you trouble? Do you wonder if there is a God or whether you can have a relationship with God? There's so many questions that go a a level below what happened in the sports teams last night. Or what's the weather going to do this week? I mean, so many times we stay up at that surface when just one good question would get us to the next level with people. And that's the question that Philip asked. Do you understand what you're reading? It's a great question. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 31. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up with him and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage, this passage of Scripture. He is led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. In verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip. Philip asked him a question. Now the eunuch asked this question. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, I'm telling you, I don't know if any of you, as parents or grandparents, have been involved in t-ball. T-ball is when you have little kids, and you're afraid, first of all, that the pitching isn't so great at that age level, when it's a little dangerous to stand up there and have someone trying to throw the ball who's not too accurate. So sometimes they'll move up to having a coach pitch. But in the beginning, they say, right, we're going to put a stick in the ground, we're going to put a ball on top of it, and that ball's not moving. And you get to come out and you get to do all your concentration on that ball and you try to hit that ball. That's all you have to do. And in essence, that's what this 
Ethiopian eunuch did for Philip. He teed it up for Philip. He said, he's reading Isaiah about the suffering Messiah, and he turns and he asks that question. Can you believe this question? Tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about? Now, there's times in our lives when people bring that kind of a question back to us. I know that you know something I don't know about God. Can you tell me what it is? I've had that question asked a couple of times in recent years. And it's like one of those unbelievable moments. God, you are so in this. You are so good to allow me the privilege of being, when you're working in this person's heart, I get to be the one to tell them the good news. It's a great thing. And so we see what Philip did, verse 35. Then Philip began with this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So what did Philip do? He didn't go into a long story of his whole family history. He didn't have to tell everything about himself. He took the Scriptures, which he knew, interestingly enough, obviously from more than a few weeks of being a Christian in Jerusalem, He had been a student of God's word, and he took the scriptures, and he showed this man how it was always God's plan that there'd be a suffering Messiah. It was always God's plan that reconciliation was not going to come by a system of works, by people trying to do good, by people trying to please and appease God, but no, instead it was always God's plan that Jesus would come and live a sacrificial life, meaning he gave his life for us. For that Ethiopian eunuch. Meaning he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he gave up that life to pay the ransom price of our sins. So that we could not just have forgiveness of sins. But we could actually be put into a right relationship with God. We could have this living relationship with Jesus Christ himself. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The creator and sustainer of the universe. And so Philip is telling this eunuch. Who had been making these trips back and forth from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Looking for God. He said, I'm going to tell you where he is. And I'm going to tell you how to know him. And it's all about this person, Jesus. And who he is and what he did. And so Philip tells him that story. It agrees with what Jesus said. When he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. You see, you can't tell somebody good news and not tell them about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the good news. Well, what happens? What's the response here from our eunuch? As he's sitting there proud and in his chariot, and the one that has all the power and the authority, and he's listening to this itinerant preacher, what does he do? He's hearing him tell the story about Jesus. Hearing about Jesus' life and Jesus' death, and he's hearing about the resurrection. And he's hearing about the people in Jerusalem, I bet, who have responded and believed and entered into this new life in Christ. And so at some point, he says this, as they traveled along the road, verse 36, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which was the actual Roman capital in Israel at that time. So what happens? This Ethiopian wanted to respond. I'm very confident that Philip had encouraged him to respond. As he shared about Christ, he said, you know, your sins can be forgiven. 
you today, today could be the day of your salvation. Today you could decide to accept this gift of God's forgiveness in Christ and have newness of life in Christ. Today could be the day. You don't have to go back to Ethiopia without God. And somehow that Ethiopian, after he heard enough of this story and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there, he said, now's the time. Why can't we do this right now? And that begs a good question. He wanted to have this repentance experience and this experience of confirming that he had made those steps by this baptism. And in essence, what else is necessary? Did he have to go join some program? Did he need to go back to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles? Did he need to have some course that he took before he could take this step of new life in Christ? Did he have to pay something? Was there something? He was a rich man. And he was the purse keeper for the queen of Ethiopia. Shouldn't he do something before he could become a new person in Christ? And the answer is no, no, no. Today was the day of salvation for this guy. Today he could have his sins forgiven and receive that newness of life that comes from Christ. And so he said, let's do it right now. Let today be the day. Let's get out of this chariot. And they went down in the water and Philip baptized him to demonstrate that his sins were washed away and he was going to be raised up with Christ in newness of life. It was a good day, believe me. Now, it was a little surprising because Philip got snatched away. And this, again, is another one of those historical moments. This isn't what happens to you every time you witness, by the way. In case any of you are worried, you don't need to be. Um, But on this day, God had such a plan to spread his gospel, and he was using Philip in such a way, Philip finished that assignment, and he moved him on to another assignment just like that. Uh, At the same time, what happened to the Ethiopian? Just picture that, guys. Here's this guy that had been making this journey, wrestling with trying to know God. And now he's going back to Ethiopia. And the people in Ethiopia might have been wondering, hey, is he finally going to become a proselyte of the Jews? Is he going to go up there and get baptized to be a follower of Judaism? Is that what's going to happen to our guy? And he came back and he said, no, I didn't decide to become a Jew today. But I became a new creature in Christ. I have the living Christ in me. My sins are forgiven. I am right with God. I am a worshiper of the living God. I think he went back a changed man. Philip went to Caesarea and preached the gospel. I'm betting you this eunuch went to Ethiopia and preached the gospel. That's what happens when people have a real encounter with the living God. It was great. And so what do we learn from this church? What do we see? What does it mean to us that this is what God was doing? There's some really important lessons that are really relevant for 2013 for Christ Church at Grove Farm. One thing we see here is God took this man who was an effective preacher and evangelist from a big city ministry where lots of people were responding to his message and he said, I care enough for this one person that I need you to go to that one person. We call this personal evangelism. We call it recognizing that sharing the gospel one-on-one has always been a part of God's plan and it's a big part of God's plan for Pittsburgh. His plan isn't just that everybody will come to church. His plan will be that people who are at church, worshiping the living God, so convinced that the gospel is true, so convinced that everyone needs to know the story of who Jesus is and what he did, that every one of us goes from this place saying, God, I want to listen to your Holy Spirit just like Philip did. And if you tell me to walk up to a chariot and talk to somebody, even if they're from a different race, or a different educational background, or a different financial background. 
I want to be faithful because I know you're working in people's hearts just like you worked in this eunuch's heart. I know there's people that you're preparing that are yearning to have peace with God, yearning to know God. And I want to find myself being obedient like Philip was. It's part of God's plan, and it's part of God's plan for our church. Now, it's part of our duty as a church to equip you. If you feel like, you know what, I'm not sure I could share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us help you. This is the most wonderful story. It is the truth of the universe, who Jesus is. And we need to help you have confidence yourself in that story so you can share that story with others. It is right that we look for opportunities across all kinds of diversity gaps. Age, sex, man to women, though I will say there's advantages for women witnessing to women and men witnessing to men. And God often keeps us doing that so that it's not a confusing or a conflicting time. As I mentioned, education, wealth, people inside and outside of our church. You need to look around your neighborhood. You need to think through your family. You need to think about the people in the, you, the, uh, you're acquainted with at work. And you need to begin praying, God, would you show me an open door? Where is it you're already at work? And draw me in to join you there. And church, you need to have confidence that God is doing the heart work. It wasn't Philip's great argument that won the day in that chariot. God was so far ahead of him, touching this man's heart and drawing him to himself. And we can know that and relax in that. (gasps) What if I say the wrong thing, pastor? What if it's because of what I said? They rejected Jesus. Just don't worry about that because it's God's business to call people. And he'll do his part faithfully. You just be faithful to testify to who Jesus is and trust all the rest to him. We got a good example from Philip here in starting with questions. Instead of just engaging people with a monologue, oh, I want to tell you about this, that, or the other. No, we need to learn to listen and listen especially for those heart things. But sometimes when you see that opening, you need to take the risk like Philip did and go a level deeper with your questions. Be a good listener before you worry about being a good speaker. And then like Philip, we've got to make sure we keep Jesus at the heart of our story. You know, it's a great thing to enjoy and be thankful for our church. And this is a wonderful church. My wife and I continue to enjoy the way we are blessed here ourselves. We love coming here Sunday morning. But gang, it isn't about our church. Our church won't save anybody. It's about Jesus. We've got to keep bringing people to Jesus. It's not about our favorite pastor. Oh, if they could just hear this person. If I could just give them this CD. If I could just get them on this radio station, on this website. If I could just give them this book. All those things might be things that God will use. But trust me on this. No pastor ever saved anybody. Right? It's Jesus. Bring people to Jesus. People need the gospel, which is the story of what Jesus did for them. And it's personal. And it's wonderful. And we get the privilege of being the ones to tell people. And we have to understand that now is the time. You know, for Philip, when the Holy Spirit said, go on that hike, he took the hike. When he said, go up to that chariot, he went up to that chariot and started a conversation. And that uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he also said, now is the time. He didn't say to Philip, well, that's a very interesting argument. I think I'll think about that for a while. Maybe the next time I'm in Jerusalem, we can get together and have coffee. What do you think? He said, no, today. What's stopping me from getting out of this chariot and into that water and being baptized today? 
And some of you might be here today, and I know every Sunday we have people at our church who have not yet received the gift of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And if you haven't received that gift yet, let today be the day. You be like that Ethiopian. Don't be so proud or so embarrassed that it keeps you from accepting God's most precious gift in Christ. Let today be the day of your salvation. I want to close with a story about a group of people, uh, a tribe actually in Africa called the Emborora. M-B-O-R-O-R-O. These folks started out historically in West Africa, in Nigeria, and they migrated out into the middle of Africa, which took probably hundreds of years. And they're pastoralists. They just keep animals, basically, and they do a little bit of agriculture. But the problem is, as they got on the move, every place they went, people weren't too happy to receive them. And these people are what we would call animist Muslims. That's going to be a little bit unusual. Animist meaning they kind of worship nature. They understand there's a God through creation, but they don't know necessarily who he is. But along the way, they picked up some Islam. And they think, okay, now we know the path. We've got to figure out how to work all these things as much as we can so that somehow this prophet Muhammad is going to help us to know God and be right with God. But they are folk Islamic people. They're not radical Islamic people. They're not that serious about it. They're just trying to be right with God. About five years ago, they were in Central Africa Republic, right smack in the middle of the continent, and they met some of our missionaries. And they said, hey, why don't you send a missionary to come live with us and tell us how to know God? Tell us how to be right with God. And we committed, say, we want to send people to live among you. That was about five years ago. Two years ago, we established that one of our highest priorities is to send a team to live among the Amborora who live in Chad, a little bit in Sudan, and Central African Republic. The boundaries out there are pretty loose, believe me. But there's some problems in CAR. First of all, they just had a coup about a month ago, and so we're not really even sure who's in charge in that country right now. That's a little bit tricky. And then the Lord's Resistance Army, this really horrendous evil group that came out of Uganda, has been moving through this region and attacking cities and villages. And the Emperor have been as bothered as anybody by this group and have to run for their lives from them. And it's not the easiest place to put a missionary team. But church, here's a group of people today as we're sitting in church. They're saying, well, someone tell me. How do I have peace with God? How? Will someone come? And live with us. Philip went. I have the privilege in my new job of looking for people who will go to places like Central Africa to work with the Imbarora. You have the privilege, perhaps, of participating with me, even as we try to figure out how to get a team there. But for sure, staying faithful to the 90 plus percent of people that aren't in church in the Pittsburgh area this morning. You have the gospel, people. Share that wealth to the honor and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice uh, at your faithfulness in building your church. It's glorious, the history of the church. And we so often struggle and lose our way and get distracted. But God, you are so faithful. And that's why we're here today, because people got the gospel to us. People worked and gave and sacrificed and shared that good news And Father, I'm asking that you would burn in our hearts that desire to be faithful witnesses as well. May we understand what you're doing and what a privilege it is to be invited to serve with you, to be the one able to share the good news of Jesus with somebody. And Father, I ask that this would not just be a theory for us, 
but that you would continue to help our church. We have a great history of sharing the gospel in this place and from this place. And I ask that you would guard us now and guide us and empower us so that we can be a powerful gospel ministry going forward. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.